0: Well, good afternoon. Welcome. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about this session as we start this this wonderful conference. My name is Dr. Dennis Sullivan. I'm the director of the Center for Bioethics at Cedarville University. And um, I'm excited. This is my first time at this conference, so I'm having a ball. And it's wonderful to have you all with me today. Um, I'm gonna, I, I know it's just one minute of, and I'm going to do the boring part first and introduce myself, and then we'll get into the more interesting thing. Um, I, I am a, a former practicing surgeon, a former missionary with uh, the organization Baptist Mid-Missions. Uh, my wife and I and our three children served as missionaries Uh, For a total of 12 years with that organization, Uh, we uh, served first in the country of Haiti, then in the Central African Republic, uh, and have traveled extensively in Chad and Nigeria. We've been in the Sudan. We've worked in, um, I've taught in Vietnam uh, on a number of occasions. I've taught uh, uh, most recently a medical ethics uh, uh, seminar in New Delhi and I'll be giving an example from that in this lecture. Um, but about uh, 17 years ago in May of 1996 we were working uh, I was the director of an 80-bed hospital in um, Ipi, a little village in uh the highlands of the um Central African Republic when um we were just down in the capital Bangui for some supplies and um and uh, there was a major uprising, a revolt against the government. We were caught and had to be evacuated from the country at that time. So we came back to the United States as refugees and uh, were not able to return to that work. And so I began to um, look at the position at uh, Cedarville University, where they wanted me to fill in for a year. And um, it kind of uh, it, it kind of infected me and got in my blood. And so I started a second career. I'm now... Um, a full professor of biology at Cedarville University, but also uh, director of our Center for Bioethics. If you have an interest in further graduate study in bioethics, we have an exciting program uh, that I'd love to tell you about, a fully online one-third of a master's graduate training in bioethics that will begin next fall. Uh, And you can... um, uh, Talk to me. My email address is simply Sullivan at Cedarville.edu, or go to the Center for Bioethics website, and there are resources with this presentation, both a, a one-page hand handout and all handout and all my PowerPoint slides are available on the ref, resources uh, for this conference. So, uh, go to my name, uh, Dennis Sullivan, and you can um, have access to those resources. And I'd love to hear from you. I love to get emails from uh, people that are interested in and that we have a shared vision with. My task today is to talk about ethics in the context of medical missions. And so I'm going to speak from my experience as a missionary, but also my training as an ethicist. Um, and we will be um, giving examples from the mission field. And my my mantra for this session is very simple. The rules are the same, but the context is different. The rules are the same but the context is different. And so as by way of objectives, we're going to review the major principles of modern biomedical ethics. We're going to give a brief historical context for these. And then we're going to spend most of our time talking about a cross-cultural context for them, Um, how those principles may need to be modified or applied in a slightly different way when we look at that context. And I'm going to start with the idea of medical principalism. Medical principalism is um, exemplified by four rules that actually go back, at least three of them go back to the time of Hippocrates. But to let you know that this is a modern contemporary understanding of ethics, uh, you can see that the latest textbook, Principles of Biomedical Ethics, by um, Tom Beecham and James Childress, um, which is, uh, you know, the latest copyright, uh, which is uh, used in a number of healthcare settings, uh, still talks about these basic rules of ethics, uh, most of which date all the way back to 400 years before the time of Christ. And so we have um, a long-standing history of medical ethics, 2,400 years of normative medical practice. What do I mean by normative? Normative refers to something that applies to everyone. These are the rules. This is the way medicine is practiced. And you may wonder why I would be invoking the name of a pagan Greek uh, physician. Uh, It's fascinating when you look at the history of the man called Hippocrates. He lived on the island of Kos in the Aegean Sea as a part of Greece. And it is said that Uh, He lived to be over 100 years old, so he must have practiced his own medical rules. Um, And uh, the Oxford English uh, Dictionary uh, gives this definition of Hippocrates, the most famous of all physicians about whom almost nothing is known. And so we don't know too much about him. He has one body of work that survived uh, into the present day uh, called his epidemics. But he's left behind a school of philosophy of medical practice that has been the standard of medical practice for all of these years. And you say, well, why would I want to talk about um, Hippocrates? Because you talk about Hippocrates every day. When you talk about medicine, you often will say, that physician can't do that. It would violate her oath. And we all know we're talking about something like a Hippocratic Oath. You've all heard of the Oath of Hippocrates. Um, which in its original context was uh, invoked uh, the name of Asclepius, the demigod, uh, and the son of Apollo and a mortal woman that um, is thought to heal by uh, uh, virtuous snakes. That doesn't sound like someone that, that I would be uh, quoting from in a, a Christian medical ethics conference. But the fact of the matter is that if you believe, as I do, that there is a law of God written on the heart of every man, something called natural law, Romans chapter 2 talks about that, verses 14 through 16. We know that some truth can be arrived at even apart from Jesus Christ, although it's not uh, uh, possible to be saved by that truth. But it does give us a common ground for ethics. And I believe that's what Hippocrates and his followers discovered. When the time of Christ came along, that was easily modified and adopted into a Christian context. And indeed, up until most recently, has been the practice of medicine that has guided us for all these many years. The four rules are beneficence, non-maleficence, distributive justice, and autonomy. Briefly, I want to take each one of those in turn and describe them, and I'll quote from the Hippocratic Oath. I would love to talk to you more about Hippocrates, but we only have an hour, so I'm going to uh, move quickly. Beneficence. Hippocrates in the Oath said this, I will apply treatment for the benefit of the sick according to my ability and judgment. That means always acting in the best interests of a patient. Isn't it interesting when we, when we um, walk into a certain building that may have a, 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 an MD's name on it, we go into a little cold room, we take off all of our clothes, we're naked, we meet a total stranger for the first time, and within five minutes we're naked and we're telling all of our deepest secrets to him. Isn't it amazing that we have that kind of trust, that we know that the person in the white coat that we're talking with will want our best interests. That is the legacy of Hippocratism. That we get that. That wasn't automatically in the the age of of the Greeks. And, uh, you know, a sorcerer could just as soon for enough money give you a poison. That was not true of Hippocratic medicine. And today we owe Hippocrates that legacy non-maleficence. Now, you're more familiar with this one. Uh, Hippocrates said, I will keep my patients from harm and injustice. You may have heard it like this, primum non nocere, which was uh, the Latin phrase that was probably first said by the physician, the Roman physician Galen. It means, first of all, do no harm. The first rule of health care. And in addition to that general uh, idea, well, if you're going to do something for a patient, at least don't kill them, right? And it was laid out more specifically in the original Hippocratic Oath that we will not even suggest giving someone a poison. We won't even suggest it. We won't even talk about it. And furthermore, we will not ever perform an abortion. Um, And these these principles came down through a combination of... um, Uh, philosophy from uh, from the philosopher Pythagoras and from the uh, religious um, influences on Hippocrates as well. But we do have these two principles, uh, non-maleficence and beneficence, the idea that physicians will always act in the best interest and will, first of all, do no harm. There's an amazing additional component in the original Hippocratic Oath that I find just fascinating. If you read the original oath in an English translation, it says this, Whatever houses I may visit, I will come for the benefit of the sick. This is the oath that uh, medical students took before they entered their training. Remaining free of all intentional injustice, of all mischief, and in particular of sexual relations with both male and female persons, be they free or slaves. Pretty remarkable. We think, well, of course that's true. Uh, you, you can't have sexual relationships with your patients. Well, that was not the standard of the practice in the, in the age of the Greeks. And this is especially remarkable when women had no rights in ancient Greek society. All of the Hippocratic physicians were men. Women had no status or rights, and certainly slaves did not. Slavery was uh, readily accepted. Today, distributive justice means that we distribute equally justice The same kind of care to all people, regardless of, and you know the list, gender, race, socioeconomic status, religion, uh, political views, religious standards, uh, all of the things that we dare not discriminate against. We owe, once again, a legacy to this ancient standard of practice. Finally, today, we have a concept called autonomy, which means that competent patients are allowed to make their own decisions. Very, very interesting. This did not appear in the Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath lived for um, over a thousand years in medical practice on the basis of paternalism. Don't worry about it. Just do what I say. I'm the doctor. Um, That's leaning heavily on beneficence and non-maleficence, isn't it? But the idea of autonomy was never even implied in the oath. It arose actually during the Enlightenment time um, in the beginning in the 18th century and later with philosopher Immanuel Kant. Um, But it does lead to an important idea today that is foundational to medicine, and that is the idea of informed consent. And I want to talk about that in greater detail on the mission context in just a minute. But Competent patients need information and they need to make their own decisions and they need to uh, have all the information to do that and that's called informed consent. Now there are other aspects of the Hippocratic tradition. There's a whole idea of professionalism. Medicine is a high calling. That oath that was taken to pagan gods is still, uh, it's, it's somewhat a- along the lines of an ordination. You're entering a sacred profession. And I, I tell my 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 students, that healthcare is a healing profession. Uh, we're not we're not the cable guy. We don't we don't fix people's televisions as a service. You know, um, I hate the expression. I think it's a vulgarity. The phrase that you hear so often now, healthcare provider. I don't provide healthcare. I am a person who takes care of sick people. And so I, 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 I find that phrase uh, offensive, and I would suggest that many of us should find that offensive. We are professionals as physicians, nurses, and other healthcare professionals, pharmacists, and, and, and those who take care of folks and have this special covenant relationship with our clients and patients. Very, very important to a Hippocratic understanding of medicine. And so in the oath, it says that we will keep medical information private. Hippocrates said, what I see or hear in the course of treatment or even outside of treatment in regard to the life of men, which on no account ought to be spread abroad, I will keep to myself, holding such things shameful to be spoken about. We don't discuss secrets that we have learned in the counseling room from our clients and patients. Well, let's look at some of these principles as they apply in a cross-cultural context. And I'll be giving examples from... Uh, some instances that I have seen. And often these examples will be where things have gone wrong uh, ethically. Um, and in hindsight, I recognize this. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a saying that I like to quote, that um, uh, good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. So um, sometimes it's my own foibles, my own mistakes that have taught me and I've had to learn from those. So let's talk about non-maleficence, the idea that we should, first of all, do no harm, but it has a few discontents associated with it. Powerful statement, isn't it? Abortion is always wrong. A year and a half ago, I was had the privilege of giving a medical ethics training seminar in New Delhi where physicians, um, 16 physicians, two nurses, and two hospital chaplains, representing former mission hospitals from all over India, came together. And we were, we were training the trainers. We were teaching those healthcare professionals who were going to go back to their institutions and share uh, what they had learned in this uh, uh, too short uh, week-long seminar Uh, which was really, for many of them, their first exposure to Hippocratic thought. Uh, Amazingly, none of the physicians had ever heard of Hippocrates. And the the nurses had, but the chaplains, uh, they had not heard of that tradition either. And so in discussing non-maleficence and the idea that we should never harm even the unborn child in the womb, I, I made the statement that um, there is a, a, a heavy idea nowadays, um, and, and I don't get political in these conversations, but in our modern context, there's a lot of pressure on the medical profession. Uh, yes, we're allowed to keep our independence and we don't, uh, we don't have to perform abortions ourselves. But in addition, uh, there are some... Uh, guidelines out there that would imply that although we don't perform those procedures ourselves, we must refer to another professional to perform that service. Um, the day that that becomes mandatory um, in the state of Ohio is a day that I will surrender my medical license because I will not comply. To me, that's moral complicity and that's wrong. Oh, boy. I got in trouble. I caused a lot of anguish among my my healthcare professionals who were working sacrificially in the system in rural India. One example is an ob physician whose first name is Rupa. Rupa is a fiery young woman. Uh, 32 years old, who has practiced uh, her profession for enough years to have a great deal of experience. And you can trust Rupa's pro-life bona fides. One evening, a baby had been delivered um, at her hospital, and she went by and found the grandmother strangling the newborn baby because it happened to be a girl. She called security, and that was stopped. And the following day, they tried to, to convince the family to keep the baby. And um, they, they said, we don't want her. You raise her. We can't afford a girl. I, I had no idea before I traveled to India that, uh, that women were so – I've heard of the caste system in India. But I had not realized the horrible discrimination against women uh, that was taking place. That little girl's now two and a half years old. Rupa adopted her because she was committed to the sanctity of human life. But when I said I would not refer a patient for abortion, she was in tears with the conflict she felt in her mind. Unlike in the United... You know, we've talked a lot about the standards of abortion clinics in the United States, and pro-life movement has tried to, uh, uh, you know, question the qualifications of, of abortion centers. Well, in India, uh, you can imagine that the... Um, that there are some abortionists right outside the hospital. Hospitals, Christian Hospital will not perform abortions. And the abortionists are right outside the door, ready to, for a quick amount of money, do an abortion that would scandalize uh, this worse than the worst standard of any abortion clinic in the United States. Rupa, trying to keep her women patients alive, says, Dr. Sullivan, I've got to refer to a competent abortionist, because if I don't, somebody will kill both the mom and the baby. Complicity in the idea of non-maleficence just isn't as simple in India as it is here in the United States. And I I was humbled by her anguished cry and the other pro-life professionals in the room, uh, they're all pro-life, were very, very um, upset about the same issue. Well, I was teaching in that same conference about the end-of-life issues, and I was giving a case study of an example where a patient with terminal end-stage lung disease um, was not able to be um, weaned from a ventilator. And so uh, in this case, which is actually taken from a a case from my personal experience, when I was in residency training, um, we... we, uh, withdrew the ventilator with the patient's consent because um, he did not want the burden of that ventilator. And, and you know and I know, as agonizing as those decisions can be, um, withdrawal of futile treatments is something that is ethically permissible uh, with a full permission, autonomy of patients. You can't, you can't force health care on people. Um, And so I gave this case study, and to my surprise, all of the Indian physicians accused me of practicing euthanasia. You're killing that patient. And I asked, why do you feel that way? Well, it turns out in their cultural context, once again, life is so cheap. Life is – and there's so many abuses, and people are so willing – That patient's had enough time to get better. We need the ventilator for somebody else. Just turn it off. You know, that sort of thing goes on all the time. So they felt they had to hold the ground and could never withdraw treatment, even when it was no longer helpful. They felt that was somehow wrong. We spent an entire afternoon trying to sort that out so they'd have a better foundation to understand when withdrawal of care might perhaps be appropriate. And such withdrawal of care is not euthanasia um, and so and, and I can't go into that subject right right now that would be another hour-long session simply to say that I, it was very very difficult in a context where uh, godly Christian physicians and nurses were struggling to do the right thing and didn't have enough information to understand what their duties were what about autonomy well, that's a real sticky problem. You can imagine some of the issues will, that will come up with autonomy on the mission field. Uh, we've got a culture of autonomy today. Uh, you know, it used to be we didn't need autonomy, as I've indicated, before the day of uh, Immanuel Kant. Um, but, but we've got a, in our American context, we have a very individualistic society, don't we? We make up our own minds. That's rugged American individualism. Try translating that out to Africa, where I worked as a missionary for many years in the Central African Republic. Very common for uh, a Christian, loving pastor bringing in his wife. I saw a lot of cervical cancer in um, in sub-Saharan Africa, and uh, many times we would we would. Um, see this. The the men, I could communicate to the men in French, although I did speak the tribal dialect. Uh, We often spoke to each other in French. Um, My sango was pretty good, but everybody seemed to want to translate my sango into sango. You know, it's always uh, it was never quite good enough in the the viewpoint of our African staff. Uh, uh, You know, I I thought it was good enough. I understand it. But anyway. um, But so... um, Often, the the women don't have any training in France. They don't go to school. Women don't have many rights in sub-Saharan Africa. So the husband would be there and very lovingly would talk to me in French. And then he would say, don't tell my wife she has cancer. Now, how do you feel about that here in the United States? That seems wrong, doesn't it? In Africa, it's perhaps not wrong. Because in their context, you have a woman who is illiterate, does not have an education and doesn't even understand the causes of disease and doesn't realize um, how how to really deal with that information, Uh, doesn't have any ability. And so out of mercy, the husband is making a request that, that quite frankly, although it graded me, sometimes I honored that. Perhaps a more sinister example is the 22-year-old young man who came to me with – bad gangrene of his left foot. Now he had uh, he had, uh, had his foot uh, pierced uh, with something dirty and then he had walked for three days to get to E.P. Medical Center. And uh, by the time we saw him, he was delirious, had a raging fever, and um, was flushed. And one look at his left foot, you could see that the foot was was, was completely overwhelmed with infection. So we called for the operating room. We set up for a below-knee amputation, and we, we made it very urgent. And uh, the young man was in and out of delirium, but he realized the urgency of this, and so we uh, we got his permission. We were able to reach his – we sent a runner out to get, while we're setting up the OR. We're giving him antibiotics. We're pouring him uh, pouring in IV fluids to rehydrate him. And we sent a word out to his parents. They came immediately and said, yes, please take care of him. You realize it's going to cost him his foot. He says, we don't care. We love him. Uh, please take care of this immediately. So we're getting ready to wheel him into the operating room. And the village chief arrived. The village chief said, no, don't operate. And I said, Why? He said, his disease is due to a curse on him. We have to pay the witch doctor back. And so I need to take him back here. We need to pay off the witch doctor. And I want you to know this mature Christian, godly, ethical man uh, lost his temper. And I grabbed the gentleman very nicely around his neck (laughs) and politely shoved him up against a wall and told him, you're going to kill this man. His parents and he want this done. He said, I have to pay off the witch doctor. And I was furious. I turned to the parents, and I said, are you going to let him cancel this operation? And they just shrugged and said, he's the chief. He died that night. So, this is tough because in a context like this, you've really got it. You, you you got a hard time dealing with autonomy. I was called upon, even though the medical director of the hospital was a woman, uh, my colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Mary, who was uh, uh, so instrumental in helping uh, keep the work going. I was happy to work under her authority, but when it came to uh, labor relations, they asked me to do it because I'm the man, right? Okay. So they had a grievance uh, paper that I thought was a bunch of uh well I won't tell you what I thought it was but it was um I thought it was a little bit of nonsense. So we got a ring of all the all of our nursing staff in the hospital and I sat down in the middle of them and I said, "Okay, who wrote this paper?" We're going to we're going to look at it line by line. Who's responsible with this? Who's your spokesperson?" And everybody was embarrassed and looked down at the ground and and we, we, we were at an impasse for like 20 minutes. Nobody would say anything. Because decisions aren't made by individuals in this sort of society. It's group decision-making, which is, uh, you know, it seems like, from my American context, seems like a cop-out. So I finally realized what was going on, and I said, well, I'll tell you what. How about if I read this first thing and I'll respond to it? I, I told myself, quit being so typical bullheaded surgeon, Dennis, and answer, look at their, so I sympathetic read, each one of them went through it, and they said, thanks, let's, you know, let's get about our work, We're all, and they all hugged me, and they walked out, and they never heard from the whole issue again. As long as I didn't single one of them out, and I listened to them, the whole problem evaporated. Well, this has some difficult things. Uh, autonomy also implies confidentiality. Our secrets are supposed to be sacrosanct. And in one particular mission field, and I won't tell you where this took place, except it's a developing country, and with a particular group of individuals whom I will not name, there was a pastor that I saw in consultation very privately that um, came to me with a positive HIV test. And in tears, after much discussion, I spent an hour with him um, he, he he blurted out I only cheated on my wife one time It's heartbreaking I put my arm around him and I prayed with him I told him he said don't tell my wife don't tell anyone this is just I'm devastated we're gonna to have to deal with it somehow and I assured him that I would not discuss his infidelity with anyone and there's a reason I don't have the final Part of the story on the slides. Went to supper that evening. One of my colleagues said at the supper table, "Oh, uh, you know how how you, you how you you gossip in the form of a prayer request." This man or woman said, "Oh, uh, pray for Pastor So and So. He cheated on his wife, and of course now he has AIDS." To everybody in the room. I had a very, very, very angry conversation with that colleague that evening and, um, because that's a violation of confidentiality. It's so easy to fall into a paternalistic attitude towards our, our, uh, the people that we're serving. Uh, I saw this a lot. We treat them as though they're not brothers and sisters in Christ with the same rights that you and I have. It's so easy to treat them like children. If there are some people in this room that are thinking about becoming missionaries and serving the Lord as medical missionaries in another field, please try to avoid those attitudes because you're going to be taught them by those that are more senior to you. Some of the career missionaries that you'll be learning under will not have learned those lessons. How about justice? Women have few rights, and this makes me mad. Um, Female genital mutilation, so-called clitorectomy, or so-called female circumcision, but it's actually clitorectomy, is practiced in most of the sub-Saharan countries, and Central African Republic is no exception. Now, you can get angry about that. You can say it's unjust and unfair, but you have to live within a culture where it happens. And so you cannot correct these disparities at the bedside. If we're going to be clinicians... Our job is to accept what is and live within the system. Sometimes it's pretty hard, especially when you feel angry at every female patient you meet. Um, it's, it's difficult. And you can't, some of those things you can't change. How about this one? How about polygamy? Longstanding cultural practice. I think, unfairly, uh, Christians have sometimes overly blamed the Quran. Uh, which uh, stipulates that you can have up to four wives. I think sometimes that's overblown in, uh, in some of the rhetoric by, uh, by conservative Christians. Um, certainly we saw it in Africa, but that existed long before, um, before Islam. Um, there's a folk Islam related to Sufti Islam that's uh, practiced in, um, in sub-Saharan Africa. And yes, many of the men do have a multitude of wives. And so um, in, in Africa, the fourth wife is usually very, very young. You have a 60-something or 70-something who uh, wants to feel invigorated. So he will take as a fourth wife a 12- or 13-year-old girl. And the amazing thing is is some of these children are having – some of these, um, some of these uh, women are having children before they've had their first period. Um, you're you're really having children that are having children. And, of course, they have a problem with cephalopelvic disproportion. The pelvis is too small for the baby's head. And so due to prolonged labor, there's contact of the head with the um, antivaginal wall, which due to ischemia, uh, a blockage of, of blood supply, causes erosion into the bladder. These women have perpetual leaking of urine from their vagina. This is called a vesicovaginal fistula. And these women are stigmatized, they're tossed out, they're abandoned, many of them become prostitutes. Um, You can look at that as a terrible problem, or you could treat it as a ministry opportunity. I've been blessed to hear um, uh, many stories from the fistula hospital in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, which is a facility. I see some, some people nodding and smiling because you've heard of it. Um, I have never had the privilege of taking three months or four months of training there, uh, but I have operated on a vesicovaginal fistula. I can tell you that my success rate is less than 50% because of the unique challenges of trying to deal with that very, very poorly uh, vascularized tissue. It takes specialized training. This is a disease that is a failure of primitive societies and polygamy. You'll you'll not see this disease due to this cause in the United States. And so it's an opportunity for ministry. Stephen Aerosmith, who is a urologist, who has worked not only in um, Addis Ababa, but then is brought back to work in in Nigeria, where he was a missionary for many years, saw 87 women consecutively with this problem, published a paper on it, 86 of whom became Christians. As a result of this ministry. So sometimes the things that bug us so much are ministry opportunities. Briefly, I will tell you that, you you know, we, we can't, we have to live within our limitations. And so sometimes um, we have to, uh, we have to function in a way that's not like we would do it back home. Real problem. I had a patient, my first ever patient with Marfan syndrome. I had read about it in medical school, um, but I had never seen a patient until I got to Africa. Um, Think of Abraham Lincoln uh, in an African-American, or as it would be an African, African, that uh, was long, lanky, with uh, with, uh, thin hands, very flexible joints, and a huge abdominal aortic aneurysm, seven centimeters in width in his abdomen, which is starting to become painful. Um, I had draft material, I'm a general surgeon, I have done aortic resection surgery in the past. I could have fixed his, we had antibiotics, did not have an intensive care unit, so somebody was going to have to, while he was undergoing the surgery, somebody was going to have to ventilate him with an Ambu bag, and we're going to have to do that under spinal anesthesia. We got evacuated from Africa while we were trying to send him. Paris. We're trying to get him sent to Paris so that, um, but I chose not to operate on him for the greater cause. Uh, It was going to drain all of our resources at the the medical center, even though he's a young man and the chances of success were only 50 50 at best. Um, I'm not a trained vascular surgeon, and so I chose not to operate on him. I lost sleep over that one but I had to live within the limitations of our center. And I don't know what happened with him because shortly after that we had to be evacuated. Um, Living with limitations is tough. I'm I'm going to uh, uh, summarize this because I want to leave some time for questions, and I bet you've got a bunch. Um, The four rules of the practice of medicine, medical principalism, beneficence, Always do the best for our patients. Non-maleficence, first of all, do no harm. Distributive justice, treat every patient the same, regardless of any irrelevant factors. And autonomy, allow patients to make their own decisions, although in the missions context, we have to practice a certain amount of paternalism. Uh, We can't can't do otherwise because of the educational limitations uh, that would lead otherwise to informed consent. We must always be professionals, it is a terrible offense to say, well, if I can't make it in the United States, I can always be a missionary. Oh, heavens, folks. Oh, heavens. What a terrible thing. During the great missionary movement in England, the, the, uh, the wave of missionaries who volunteered to go overseas, They were calling, the churches there and the United States, this is back in the 1960s, we're calling for our best and brightest to go overseas to serve. And I can tell you, having practiced in such an environment, it's an honor and a privilege and to quote from the Peace Corps motto, it's the toughest job you'll ever love. And so it's been my privilege to serve in this context and now to think about that context from the viewpoint of medical ethics. Remember the rules are the same but the context is different what questions do you have for me yes ma'am what about the pastor good question the question relates to the pastor who was HIV positive, and the question relates to how do we protect the, the wife who, if, if she did not know about his infidelity, might become HIV positive. It had been my intention until I found out that, the, that someone else gave out this information to ask one of the pastors in the area, take him into our confidence and ask him to go to the family and counsel with them. So I had intentions of in the proper way, following through with counseling with one of our nurses who was also a pastor and try to come alongside this pastor and encourage him. And then together we would go to his wife. And talk. I didn't have that opportunity. It got kind of distorted and uh, became a scandal in the church, and she found out about it anyway. But um, it, it shouldn't have happened that way. Your suggestion is a good one, that we need to make sure that uh, you can't just keep confidentiality, but you have to do it decently and in order and so my intention was to continue the counseling with another party to help me to intervene with the wife so that um things that she her rights would be protected as well and especially she could avoid if she hasn't already become if she hasn't already become seropositive that she could be uh, she could prevent that that's a very good question somebody else yes Oh, my. The question was, what was my counsel to Rupa, who uh, who is dealing with the problem of is she going to let her um, woman who wants an abortion um, go to just anybody and be butchered? Or could she refer her to uh, someone for um, f- to someone who would not, uh, you know, incompetently take care of her? Um I, I had a terrible time with that one. Uh, you asked me what my advice was to her. Uh, we talked about it afterwards because she brought it up during the sessions. And I we prayed about it together. And I told her I didn't have a good answer for her. But that she needed to trust her instincts. Um, that I hate the idea of complicity. Um, this has come up before. I, I've, I, you know... The Lord has done wonderful things in my life, but I, 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 I haven't always in my life uh, said things in as good a way as I might say them now. So I remember once when I first began to teach ethics, I said in a Christian Medical and Dental Association conference, I said, why, if I were to refer a woman for abortion, that would be like saying, oh, I don't do murder for hire, but I'll, I'll refer you to a good hit man. You know, and and you know, making this point eh, probably a little bit arrogantly, I, I said it, and immediately afterwards, two physicians came up to me and said uh, they were a little disappointed. They understood the point I was making, but they worked for a group where they had a uh, a requirement, uh, internal referral requirement. They were bound by their um, by their uh, by the group rules that they had to do that legally, and I was a little embarrassed. And I, I, I to the the group the following. Uh, session, I told them that I shouldn't have uh, shot off my mouth so much. Privately, thinking that if I were that if I knew ahead of time that an HMO I was joining would have those rules, I would not have I would not have agreed to work for such an HMO. That's easy for me to say. Okay, so um, I had to walk in Rupa's shoes. And realize, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. I do not like the overt complicity of referring somebody for an abortion. But on the other hand, I understand Rupa's point of view. Honestly, I didn't know what to tell her. That's the short answer. That was a long way of saying, I don't know, to your question. Yes, in the back. I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure you're splitting hairs. Let me repeat the question. Uh, the question from the back was, is there a difference between if the woman is struggling to make a decision, she's kind of between keeping the baby or maybe going forward and having an abortion, and we, we, we try to counsel her, we try to encourage her the best we can, but then when it appears that she's bound to determine to have an abortion, She wants a referral to wait until that moment to grant the referral. I think you may have a point. Um, The way I've done that, I've done some volunteer work for uh, crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, uh, We we call them women's resource centers now, excuse me. Uh, But um, when I volunteered for women's resource centers, um, the the thing that I try to tell women is, um, uh, number one, we care about you, and number two, you have choices you learn nothing else from me tonight. I want you to know those two things. And then we lay out the possibilities. Here's what will happen if you uh, carry the baby to turn. Perhaps you'd like to allow us to help you develop an adoption plan as well. And here is the option of abortion. And we explain it. And we don't lie to them. We tell them that abortion is a safe procedure in the first trimester. But then I will always add, but the safest thing is to carry your baby to turn and then allow that woman t- to make a free, autonomous choice. However, I think that our our influence in developing countries has great moral weight, and I think it's a little different. That conversation that I would have in the United States might look different in India or in Central African Republic, where I think that our influence can be greater and we can be a little less diffident about declaring ourselves to be Christians and and that sort of thing. I don't mean to imply that the ethical rules are different. I mean to imply that the context might allow us more freedom in uh, developing countries, and that might be an advantage that that we can have. I, uh, you know, that's something that. Uh, but I like your idea. There might be some discriminating ideas, and certainly, while the woman is of is of two minds, I'm going to try to influence her uh, towards choosing life. It's interesting that that. Um, uh, another ethics uh, question that we had, an interesting, in a, in a society where women have no rights. I didn't run into that problem in Central African Republic because when I worked there, the whole onus on a woman is to have babies. Nobody wanted to have an abortion in Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and so the woman who's bought from a family, she's, she's like property. If she can't produce uh, uh, children as part of the male uh, you know, uh, self uh, uh, self image and that sort of thing. If she can't, she'll be she'll be sold back to the the family. He wants his money back. I, I'm putting that in, in 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 blunt terms. And so the ethical issue was trying to teach people to to genuinely love women for themselves. We tr- try to teach the the our our, our staff that uh, to have an attitude towards their wives that is more godly and. Um, and, boy, we worked hard to try to help these women to have babies. We, we would give them uh, additional vitamins. We'd give them the potassium because sometimes they were they, were, uh, they were, uh, had thyroid uh, insufficiency. We would give them treatments for worms, and we would try to help them uh, any way we could so that they could succeed in having children so that their rights would be protected. That's the, that's the way rights are defined in sub-Saharan Africa. So it's a, it, depending on the cultural context, uh, we're dealing with the issue of, of abortion in some cultures but not in others. So I I wanted to add that comment. There's a question here. Yes, sir. So, I'm, I'm sorry, what's your question again? So I have the resources to bring materials that would protect myself from TB and HIV all around, but it would, the school would, would reimburse me for that. Oh, I see. So prophylaxis for to prevent you from getting TB, to protect you from getting malaria, um, uh, which I've taken all the time that I've been in a, in, a, in a culture where we're at risk for those diseases, and we bring our own medications along um, and, and I think the question relates to, I think you're feeling a little bit uneasy about the fact this is a fourth-year medical student speaking uh, who's going to make a, a, a rotation overseas. Um, you're worried about the ethics of that when, when nobody around you has access to those preventative treatments, and you're wondering if you can justify taking them to yourselves. Um, I, I, I'm going <laughs> to use a utilitarian argument with you. Uh, it may sound kind of crass, but you know what? if you can survive that experience uh, because you're taking care of yourself, you're going to benefit from that experience and you're going to help a whole lot more, more people at a later date. Um, I, I think that that may sound very utilitarian, but remember, utilitarianism is a, is a method of reasoning that we actually use every day. Uh, we shouldn't be so quick to uh, condemn it just because of its limitations. So to my way of thinking, I, I, I think it's a wonderful idea as long as you know what you're trying to accomplish. When it comes to short-term visits to other countries, I have some strong feelings. I think it's, it's amazing how sometimes nursing and medical students come over and they want, to, they want to do everything and they want to lead people to Christ. If you think about that, and, and with all due respect, we need to be willing to be welcomed, pampered, and taught. We need to be willing, we need to be humble enough to allow our dear African brothers and sisters to give us the front seat in the church and ask us to speak in the service, even though our words will translate into some other language and you have no idea what they're actually going to hear. But, um, but we need to be humble rather than thinking that we're going to come in there and lead people to Christ or we're going to do such and such a procedure. We're going to be their guests it's a lot of um, it, it's a hassle for the medical professionals to have us there. They do so with a servant attitude. But make sure your heart is right, brother, before you go. Um, it's a wonderful thing. I had the privilege of, of going to Africa as a third-year medical student for ten weeks to Chad, Africa, and it changed my life. But it took me about three weeks to get rid of some of my, uh, you know. Uh, things that I was going to do, and I'm going to show them this, and I'm going to do that. And finally, I just got on my knees with tears before the Lord, overwhelmed by the needs I saw and the humility of the people that were welcoming me. And I got my attitude straightened out a little bit, and I really benefited from it. The man who who taught me and discipled me is now in heaven. My spiritual grandfather, who taught me my view of missions, that I keep to this very day. So. Uh, short-term missions for healthcare uh, students is a wonderful idea, and I hope you won't let some, some um, well-thought-out but perhaps slightly misplaced uh, concerns keep you from doing it. So appreciate the question. Um, I think our time is about what's our time here? I have one more question. Five more, five more minutes? Oh, I'm I'm in heaven. Great. Return back to the uh, example with the in India, uh, withdrawing life support. Yes, sir. Um, Your audience that you were dealing with were the Christian physicians. Yes, sir. Um, uh, Change the audience to a culture um, such as I'm a a neonatologist looking at Middle East opportunity where, if I understand things correctly, withdrawing um, life support from babies or anybody in their culture um, is not appreciated or accepted. So how do you approach as a physician to change a whole culture or to interact and not offend them but yet still you know not leading babies or adults on ventilators for weeks, months on end until they succumb in spite of us. Okay, I'll re- repeat the question as best I can. It's, a, it's an excellent one, and I'm going to repeat the question so I have time to try to think of some way to answer it. Um, <laughs> this is a pediatrician who is asking, um, uh, you know, about at the, at the other end of life, we're talking about elderly patients at death's door, but how about neonates that aren't going to make it that are, that are on ventilators and perhaps have reached this point where further ventilator therapy is um, is no longer appropriate. A very, I have to interrupt. Uh, Robert Orr, a well-known uh, medical ethicist, has said this, and it's a saying that I've adopted for my own life. Um, Some treatments are futile, but care is never futile. Um, and I, I think that exemplifies our attitude as we approach those that are dying. Um, there may be, the, the question relates to cultural practices that may oppose um, the idea of withdrawing uh, uh, treatments from neonates that um, that don't have a chance to survive, and 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 it may be a cultural taboo, um, and 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 I th- I think that there are a number of places where that's true. I know that in um, for example, withdrawing treatments in um, a Buddhist context is uh, can be very very inappropriate given uh, the way they look at um, those acts. And it seems to many people like an overt act uh, that would be akin to euthanasia uh, to withdraw futile treatments. The idea of medical futility is a very, very difficult concept. And I think you're going to have to train the medical professionals, first of all, to be comfortable with it. Uh, You can't change the cultural views. You're not going to change the entire culture. You have to begin with who you can begin with. So I began my process with those who were going to be teaching others. We were teaching the teachers or training the trainers. That's what we were doing in New Delhi. And so I think you need to work with the medical staff to help them to be comfortable with end-of-life decision-making. And these are tough decisions. um, But um, uh, dealing with brain death, dealing with futility of certain treatments Dealing with um, decision making at the end of life is a complex matter, and I, I, can't, I can't give you a better answer except that you would have to train the healthcare professionals themselves. Then they can try to make that case with their culture. You're not going to be able to make the case directly to the culture. You've got to do it through the healthcare professionals. Let's see. I've uh, got a couple minutes, I guess. Yes, sir. Hey, Hi. You, yeah. Hey, hey Nate. Nice to see you, man. One of our Cedarville University graduates, yay. Uh, My question is, is if you're in a rural environment or working in a medical mission setting with limited resources, you may be put in situations, like you were mentioning before, the AI or the draft repair, where you're the only person to do it, but uh, what's presented before you is above your level of training or above your level of care. How do you, I guess, ethically deal with going past your front Practice zone and not being very good at it, yeah. but to try to save a life, even if that's not what you're trained for. So Nate, you're with. Yeah, the question Nate asked is um, how we can uh, deal with the fact that we sometimes have to get above our level of care uh, in uh, resource poor countries where you're the only or one of the few healthcare professionals that's going to do something. Well, I'll just tell you, I delivered a lot of babies, and I never trained, that, trained to do that in um, general surgery training. Mm-hmm. I, I did um, a lot of eye surgery. I went to Nigeria, to Kano Eye Hospital in Northern, uh, Equa Eye Hospital in Kano, Nigeria for three months to do a crash course in cataract and um, trabeculectomy surgery. And I saw a thousand and some cases the following year in Central African Republic. Um, I was doing, um, one time I had to do, I had a chronic Osteomyelitis of the right femur. And he didn't need an amputation. He needed a right hip disarticulation uh, to, to save his life. Um, and because so, he was becoming chronically septic and just was, it was, it was draining. It was thin, uh, you know, it was, not, it was not looking good for him. And so I studied for two days. I drew pictures. I wrote out the steps. And I brought in a music stand into the OR, and we set up the books. And I said, please turn to page 42, and I turned the page. Okay, the next I had the steps written out, and I did it by the numbers. And he, we got the leg off, we packed it open, it healed beautifully because it didn't have that drain on his ATP and uh, energy resources. He gained weight, he healed it beautifully, and he was so grateful. Um, it was just a wonderful result. Um, but I had, never, I had never seen anything, let alone um, ever performed it. And I did a lot of operations like that where I just had to, and, and eventually you reach a point where you have to decide, mm, I, I can't do that. I won't do it. And the best way I can illustrate that is I will tell you, quite frankly, the next tooth I pull will be my first. I've never learned how to pull teeth. So when people would ask me, I simply say, I don't know how, and that's the truth. Is that easy to learn? Oh, sure. But I simply decided that's not something I can afford to take on. And that's, that's the decision-making you're going to have to make to become a missionary. You've got to make, you have to decide where your line is. It's going to be different for different people. One more question. go overseas doing more than they would ever do in the state because it would be way out of their scope of practice and their abilities, but they're, again, put in the situation where they're maybe asked to do things that they are not trained to do or licensed (laughs) to do, and I think that's a stickier thing because then they're put in a position of outside of their not just yeah. comfort zone, but even really their abilities. The question relates to uh, students, uh, nursing students, medical students, uh, pharmacy students, uh, going overseas and participating in medical care, maybe doing things that they've never done before, maybe it's above their competency to do them, and um, might be might be might uh, raise questions of legality or ethics. Uh, first of all, the, the legal questions have to be dealt with at the local level. So if it's legal... Um, I can tell you that if such students were to visit our work in, at E.B. Hospital, uh, there's no legal uh, constraints there. Um, and and everything that a student does should be under supervision. And students need to recognize that they act under supervision. Um, you know, I visited Africa. I was a cocky medical student. a planned to go into surgery, which probably because I was a cocky medical student, but... Um, you know, and and I can I can tease about that, by the way, because the Lord has, has wonderfully worked in my heart. And there's some people in this room that know how, the, how God has worked in my heart in those areas, by the way. Uh, he's smiling at me because he knows the history, which I won't tell any of you. But I will tell you that, you know, I was closing a wound for Dr. Seymour, my mentor. And I was confident to do it. I was closing it. And I made some joke. You know, I got a little cocky. I made some joke. It was kind of inappropriate. And Dr. Seymour said, just shut up and do your work. And it was a rebuke. And I deserved it. And um, as long as we're under guidance, as long as we can stand before the Lord and said, we did. It is an opportunity to get outside of your comfort zone. Just don't, in your enthusiasm, go too far with that. If you're not sure of yourself, ask for help. Remember, these are our brothers and sisters Let's not adapt attitudes like, well, I'm here to get what I can out of it. You know, that was a little bit my attitude when I went to Africa. Boy, the Lord used that, and he changed it. And now, and then by, within a few weeks, I was, I was asking people to show me things, and I had a much more humble attitude as I saw men and women that had stood up before the government and lost their lives for their faith. And, and there's some exciting stories I don't have time to tell there. So I think it calls for humility and a recognition of your recognition of your own limitations. But, oh, yeah, you'll get to do a few things that you've never done before. And that's okay as long as you understand the limits. Let's see. I, I'll take one more question because I, nobody's kicking me out. Just a comment on that question, too, as a medical student that's been there, too. Communication is really important. So talking to the supervisor that's there because they might not know exactly. Yeah. Like I was a first-year medical student and i was operating yeah. in mexico not operating. i was in mexico and 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 they, they thought i was like a fifth year medical student so yeah. the communication there i didn't pipe i didn't pipe up and say actually i don't know anything and i should have <laughs> um, that way they, that they, would, they would have known my limitations honest okay. comment communication is key one more question here different there. If she was part of a Muslim situation where she yes. has multiple mates, she does not have to tell anybody that she has HIV. And I've had a hard time dealing with this. Yeah. But now I understand, because in that culture, if she goes back and tells anyone that she's HIV positive, they it doesn't matter who was at fault, who brought it into the family. She will be accused. She'll, she'll be, be kicked out of the, the relationship, relationship. or harmed. Of, yeah, or... She'll be kicked out to go to prostitution. But probably the worst thing is her children are owned by the father, and her children will then become slaves to the rest of the family. Yeah. And so it's easy for us to say... Yeah, Yeah, just a comment about the uh, HIV positive uh, situation. If it's a woman, limitations in Muslim culture about sharing that with other partners within the relationship because of all the negativity that can cause culturally. Um, This has been my great pleasure. Um, I'm happy to chat with any of you uh, afterwards. I'll be here for some time afterwards. Thank you for your kind attention.